invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, or if you don't, there are some under the seat in front of you somewhere, or you can pull it up on your phone. We're looking at the, uh, I bet John Wesley never said that, but anyway, that's uh, beside the point. But um, this is a, a story from 1 Samuel, and I want to catch you up as you're pulling that up, where we've been so far in our journey through the Old Testament. Last week, you'll recall, we left the children of Israel there in the desert. Uh, they were uh, at the base of Mount Sinai making a golden calf. God is ready to smoke them, but Moses kind of stands in the gap there and, and leads them forward, and God goes with them. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert. In fact, that generation, except for one exception, Joshua, does not make it into the promised land. Even Moses is not able to go in to the promised land. But in the book of Joshua, we learn that they do indeed cross the Jordan River, go into the promised land, and take over the conquest of Canaan. But there's still a lot of pagan peoples who are uh, situated there in and around uh, the land of Canaan. And so the Israelites, as they settle in their tribes, begin to struggle. They struggle with their neighbors. And the book of Judges then gives us this sort of idea of, of how things have kind of devolved. After this great miraculous deliverance from Egypt, the next generation of people begins to struggle with worshiping and being faithful to God. So the cycle of Judges goes something like this. <laughs> judges begins with the people being unfaithful. They're chasing after the gods of the Canaanites. And they're, they're looking after them. Jump to the sermon slide there, would you, Lisa? There's the cycle. I'm, I'm throwing her off here. Appreciate the staff. Don't you appreciate the staff? Because this is what I do to them on a regular basis. The people turn away from God, and they, they worship these other gods, and they kind of forget who they are. Well, God then judges them by sending one of these enemies to come and take them over. And at that point, then, the people are so desperate that they cry out for God just like people on TV only pray when they're in trouble. And uh, they pray to God, and God sends them a deliverer, a judge, who will come and deliver them. The judge does so. Think about Samson and Gideon and all these great stories from the book of Judges, Deborah and so many others. But after the judge delivers them, God's mighty power is revealed after a while, things go back to normal. They turn away from God, and the cycle starts all over again. It starts over and over and over until at the end of Judges, we see that there is even a civil war within the ranks of the Israelites. It's bloody. It's terrible. The last few chapters of Judges have some of the most horrific scenes in all of the Bible. But the book of Judges ends with this verse, which I find quite descriptive. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. They were divided, broken, wandering after other gods, doing their own thing. I don't know if that sounds familiar or not. That happens throughout history because we look at that cycle of judges and we see that we get in the same cycle as well. The church of Jesus Christ gets in the same cycle as well. But thanks be to God that God does not leave us in that situation. In fact, while the whole nation might be turning away, 
there in the book of Judges, there are still some faithful people who are offering prayer to God and looking for a better future. And that brings us to the beginning of 1 Samuel, where we read about Hannah, the faithful woman. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. A man named Elkanah had two wives, one named Hannah and the other named Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah didn't. Every year this man would leave his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heavenly forces in Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever he sacrificed, Elkanah would give parts of the sacrifice to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters, but he would only give one part of it to Hannah, though he loved her, because the Lord had kept her from conceiving. And because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving, her rival would make fun of her mercilessly just to bother her. So that is what took place year after year. Whenever Hannah went to the Lord's house, Peninnah would make fun of her. Then she would cry and wouldn't eat anything. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would say to her. Why won't you eat? Why are you so sad? Aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? One time after eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah got up and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting in the chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Hannah was very upset and couldn't stop crying as she prayed to the Lord. Then she made this promise. Lord of heavenly forces, just look at your servant's pain and remember me. Don't forget your servant. Give her a boy. Then I'll give him to the Lord for his entire life. No razor will ever touch his head. As she kept praying before the Lord, Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was silent. So Eli thought she was drunk. How long will you act like a drunk? Sober up, Eli told her. No, sir, Hannah replied. I'm just a very sad woman. I haven't had any wine or beer, but I've been pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think your servant is some good-for-nothing woman. This whole time I've been praying out of my great worry and trouble. Eli responded, then go in peace, and may the God of Israel give you what you've asked from him. Please think well of me, your servant, Hannah said. Then the woman went on her way, ate some food, and wasn't sad any longer. They got up early the next morning and worshipped the Lord. Then they went back home to Ramah. Elkanah had sex with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, which means, I asked the Lord for him. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks to God. So what we see here at the beginning of 1 Samuel is kind of a microcosm of Israel's own situation. There is barrenness. There is lack of hope, lack of a future. And like those nations around Israel, Peninnah constantly nags, constantly nags at Hannah, her rival. And Elkanah, the husband, is kind of clueless. He's a typical dude. Notice what he says to her says to Hannah, she's crying, Hannah, aren't I worth more to you than ten sons? He makes it about himself, right? Typical guy. And he, what he should have said was, aren't you worth more to me than ten sons? She's inconsolable. Remember that in the ancient world, barren women were considered to be cursed by God, particularly if they did not have sons. And indeed, there was an economic reason to have children as well, particularly sons, because they would take care of you. If the husband died, that eldest son now would be your caretaker. 
Hannah was desperate. Desperate, harassed, feeling like an outsider. And so in her desperation, she takes her case to the Lord. She goes to Shiloh for the annual sacrifice. In those days, before the temple, the tabernacle was stationed at Shiloh, and so the people would go to Shiloh, where Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests. They were very corrupt, however, which says that not only was the nation in trouble, the priests of the temple were also pretty corrupt. But they would go offer their sacrifices anyway. And one year, Hannah decided to take her case directly to God. Now, normally, when you went to the temple, you would pay the priest to go in and do the prayer for you. That'd be a good racket if you were a clergy person, actually, uh, when you think about it. Um, but, um, but Hannah knew she could take her petition directly to the Lord, and so she comes to the doorpost of the temple, of the tabernacle. And there is old Eli, the priest, sitting there, and she begins to pray. Now, most of the time when we think about prayer, we think about it in kind of a very perfunctory manner. We do what we've been taught to do. We bow our heads and we close our eyes and, and we fold our hands and, and we mutter. Suddenly we begin to speak in King James English, oh Lord, we beseech thee, you know, things like that. We, we, we have this sort of formula in our minds and, and we think about our prayer list and we bring a laundry list of things to God and, and we hope that God will act, but, but we're not necessarily really expecting him to. We just know we need to pray because that's what we've been taught to do. That's how it works. People get embarrassed about prayer. Every time I go to a meeting, everybody looks at me and says, Pastor, will you, will you do the prayer? Because you're a professional. And I always say the same thing. I am a professional, but please try this at home. You know, it's really important that you do that. Hannah's prayer is striking because it is deep. It is so deep comes out of such a deep well of despair and desire and want for what God could do, trust in what God could do, that she is praying in a way that she's pouring herself out. No priest mediating. She's there at the door of the, of the tabernacle, letting it all go, weeping. And Eli, the clergyman, looks at her and this is unusual. This is not dignified. Prayer? This woman must be drunk. Don't come here and pray when you're drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. Notice the wordplay? I am pouring out, pouring out my soul before the Lord. She's praying for a son, but notice the son is not just for herself. She says, Lord, if you grant me the son, I will give him back to you. You've given me a gift, I will give him back to you. He will be a Nazarite, which is a way of saying he is set aside for the Lord's service. No razor will touch his head. He will drink no strong drink. Back in the book of Judges, Samson was a Nazarite in the same way, although he didn't act like one. That's a story we'll come back to sometime in the future. But Samuel would be set apart. Eli sees her prayer so fervent, so sincere, so deep that he cannot help but say, may the Lord grant you what you've asked for. And of course, then she goes home and conceives 
And after the child is weaned, can you imagine? She brings him back to Shiloh. And she hands him to old Eli the priest who keeps her promise to God. Chapter 2, she gives a long prayer of joy because of what God has done for her. It's a model for the kind of prayer we'll see later in the Gospel of Luke when Mary prays thanksgiving for conceiving the child Jesus. Magnificat. Her prayer is answered, not for herself, but for her people. Samuel, we know, will become the great prophet of Israel who will anoint kings and challenge them, who will speak God's word on behalf of his people. Samuel will usher in the monarchy, which leads us to King David, whose greatest royal ancestor, of course, is Jesus, descendant. All because a faithful woman prays. Not perfunctory prayer, but deep, abiding, soul-pouring prayer. There's a word that uh, we don't use much anymore, but it's a beautiful English word when you think about it. It's called travail. This is travailing prayer. Deep, abiding, tearful, emotional kind of prayer. Psalm 126, verse 5, says, You shall sow with tears and will reap songs of joy. Hezekiah, we learn, as one of the kings, when Judah was threatened by the Assyrian invaders, it says that he spread out his prayers before the Lord. He laid down in the temple and he prayed to God for deliverance and salvation. Isaiah tells us that when the prophets prayed, they prayed so fervently and so hard that they gave God no rest. Remember what God said to Moses? Leave me alone. Moses wouldn't leave him alone. The kind of prayer that we're talking about here, travailing prayer, is the kind of prayer that will not leave God alone until he acts. And then, of course, we dial to the New Testament. We see the ultimate example of travailing prayer in Jesus as he prays in the garden. And I've stood in that spot there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can look up at the walls of Jerusalem and Jesus knows what he's about to face the next day. And he prays in such fervent ways that his sweat become as drops of blood. That is deep, deep abiding prayer. Pouring out one's soul before the Lord. This is the kind of prayer that has preceded every great movement in Christian history. In fact, the early church believed in it so much that they put language to it. Tertullian, the early church father, called prayer a holy violence unto God. Can you imagine? Not this sort of polite little, gee, God, if you, if you really would, that would be awesome. We beseech thee upon thy great mercy. No, this is, I'm not going to let you alone until you do it. Holy violence. Augustine said that he was the son of his mother's tears. That is a powerful image. Augustine knew that his mother had prayed for him over and over to the point of tears. And Augustine was one who was wayward and lost and had left for a very long time, was a playboy in the fourth century in North Africa. And yet his mother's tears 
brought him back. He became one of the great bishops of the church. Much of our theology is found in Augustine, the son of his mother's tears. When I read that, I, I thought about my own mother and the way that she used to put little notes in my lunchbox when I went off to school each day. I was that kid, you know, and she would take my peanut butter sandwiches and cut them into cookie shapes of hearts and things like that. She said, I'm praying for you today. The son of his mother's tears. Origen said that God only pays attention to weeping. When we are at the point where our hearts are broken with what breaks the heart of God, that's when real prayer begins to happen. The Celtic missionaries says that the measure said that the measure of your prayer is when the tears come. Travailing prayer. When times were desperate, when no other way could be seen, the people of God were on their knees and on their faces, travailing prayer. And it changes things. As we learned last week, Moses' prayer changed what God planned to do. That is a bold statement. Can we be so bold as to pray for God to act in ways we cannot even imagine? You know, we are sitting here today as the result of travailing prayer. You might not know this story. In 1722, a group of Austrians fled their homeland to settle in Germany because they were undergoing religious persecution. They were a sect called the Moravians. And they settled in this little village called Hernhut, which much of the land around there was owned by a man named Count Zinzendorf. Such a great name, I love that. And so Zinzendorf gave them this land and, and they settled there and they began to, to build this little religious community. Well, at one point they had a kind of dispute with one another which never happens in the church, but they had this dispute with one another, and Zinzendorf came among them, and he began to want to heal the rift, and so he suggested that what they should do is to pray over it, and to pray for 24 hours straight. And so these Moravians gathered together, and they began to pray in 1727. They started a prayer meeting that lasted 24 hours, and it didn't stop after that. In fact, the prayer meeting went on continuously, continuously for a hundred years. John Wesley was on his way to America to be a missionary, struggling with his faith. On board that same ship were some of these Moravians who are now being launched out in this missionary movement, some of the first to do foreign missions in the world. And these Moravians were on the ship and there was a great storm on the sea and all the passengers on the ship were terrified because it looked like the ship was going to be swamped and lost at sea. John Wesley was in a panic, but there he saw the Moravians gathered together in a circle with smiles on their faces, praying before the Lord and offering praise. And John Wesley thought to himself, I want what they have. That kind of trust and depth of knowledge of God. John Wesley got to know some of the Moravians, one man named Peter Burler. Wesley said, I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know where I'm at. And, and Burler said to Wesley, he said, John, preach faith until you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. John Wesley was a failure as a missionary. 
came home to England dejected, but remembering Burler's words and went to a meeting one night on Aldersgate Street, May 24th, 1738, where he heard someone reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, and he suddenly had the light go on. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had saved me from my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. One of the first things John Wesley did after this amazing, heartwarming experience was to cross the channel and go to Germany, to Herrenhut, to see this place where the prayer meeting was still going on. And he got to know these Moravians and saw how they prayed together in small groups and, and it became the impetus for what would be launched as the Methodist movement, the class meeting, the Wesleyan way of prayer, means of grace, all of that came out of this Moravian way of being, out of travailing prayer. It's a kind of prayer that not only changed John Wesley and his people, but it began to change the culture of England itself. Remember, at the same time, France was going through a revolutionary period where the classes began to be at war with one another. And the same class distinction existed in England, but because of the Methodists who played with both the poor and the rich and gave them what they needed, gave them a different way of thinking and being, England was spared that kind of revolution. A lot of historians credit the Methodists for saving England from the same fate changed an entire culture, all because a few people gathered in an obscure place to devote themselves to prayer. We're here because of it. And the question, I guess, is why don't we still do that? We see prayer as kind of an individual thing. You know, we, we do it when we have time. Uh, we do it according to formulas and things like that. But have you ever really had that sort of deep, travailing prayer? If you've been through a deep crisis in your life, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to pray until the tears come. Can we pray that way not just for ourselves and for our loved ones, but for our culture, for our church, for the brokenness we see around us every day? feel like we're being called to that kind of prayer. I've never really done that very much, only in those kinds of crises. I tell the story once about being on a backpacking trip with a bunch of kids in Kentucky, and uh, we came out of the woods, and, and I had a van that one of the church members lent me. It was a 1973 Ford van. This was like 1993. This van did not belong on the road at all, and we'd been backpacking for three days. We came out of the woods, and we went to get in this green monstrosity, and I turned the key, and it would not start at all. And I have 12 kids and three hours of driving ahead, and the nearest phone is 10 miles away. This is the days before cell phones. So I get out of the van, and I open the hood, and I'm looking at what's in there. And Greg Lucid, who's one of the youth, Greg Lucid, who is now a record producer in Nashville. Greg comes over and he stands next to me, he looks down, he says, 
you have no idea what you're looking at, do you? I said, no, I have no clue what I'm looking at. I said, I have no idea what to do here. I said, but what we can do is pray. So we closed the hood of the van, and I had 12 kids, myself, Jennifer was on that trip too, and we all put our hands on the hood, and we prayed, oh Lord, please, we pray to you in travail because this van has to start. We have no other choice. And I got back in the van, and I turned the key, and it fired up, and those kids believed from then on that God is real. I prayed like that when our son was in ICU as a baby. I prayed like that when a family in our church, a former church, lost a son who was murdered. I prayed like that several times in my life but usually only in crisis, personal crisis. I believe now we're not just in personal crisis, we're in national crisis, church crisis, capital C, church crisis. And it's time for the people of God to close the hood and do what we know how to do and that is to pray. It precedes every big movement of God. When you look back at the great awakenings of the 18th and 19th century in American history, you see they all began when small groups of people, pockets of people, began to pray fervently for revival to come. And I would argue that we are in a situation right now where the only thing that's gonna save our nation, our church, our world, is the fervent prayers of God's people. John Wesley said that God does nothing but an answer to prayer. We have not because we ask not. I feel a deep call, as I said last week, and I want to repeat it again. I'm giving you the same message basically as last week because it's important. But we need to be a people of prayer. And so we're going to try an experiment. We're going to think about those Moravians who prayed consistently for a hundred years. Imagine. I'm going to suggest that we try 24 hours. November 12 to 13 is an important day in the life of our church. It's a day when we will uh, celebrate our commitments for uh, the coming year, our, our commitments as members of the church to support it through our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. It's also the day of our church conference where we look back at the year past and we look ahead to what God would have us do in the coming year. It will also be the week after the election. And if there is any time for us to pray, that would be prime time, right? I'm going to invite us to a 24-hour prayer vigil. We've got a sign-up sheet out there. We're going to invite you to take a half an hour. It can be any time during the day or night. Maybe you want to take more than half an hour. I don't know if you've ever been up in the middle of the night praying. I know some of you were up in the middle of the night because you texted me. I forgot about this. Oh, yeah. But I want to invite you to sign up and to spend a half an hour on your knees before the Lord. Now, 
talk about being able just to do that at home. You can roll out of bed and do it. But we're also, I'm very much thinking about just opening the church for 24 hours. Being here and inviting people to come. To be here and pray together. I think that's what God's calling us to. I think revival is on the horizon if we will only ask God for it. Pour out our souls in confession and petition on behalf of a broken world. God does nothing but an answer to prayer. May we be a people who are known for it because it can change the world. Let us pray. Lord, in the quiet, we come to you. We see this rich legacy of those who have come before, who have put themselves on their faces in front of you, who have given you no rest in prayer. We confess that we have often been neglectful. I have often been neglectful of praying. We see it as an obligation or a duty rather than being in your presence. Lord, break us of embarrassment. Overcome our reluctance and bring us before you. For you have said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Help us to remember our forebears in the faith and how they offered themselves to you without reservation. We look at our world, God, and we see that your intervention is the only way forward. Break our hearts with what breaks yours. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. And now we come to the table of our Lord where we are reminded of how much he loves us. And so all are welcome who would come and receive the sacrament. We come confessing our sin before God and one another. So let us pray. If we are awake to it, we realize that we all know barrenness of some sort. Places in our lives or in our world, longing for new life, waiting for God's vivacious touch. Let us confess those places together now, praying for God to be at work.